0: Welcome, welcome to the latest episode of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, that is me, where telling the truth is a revolutionary act in a time of universal deceit. If you don't know that quote, it is from Orwell. I say it all the time. It's never been more apropos than the times we live in now. So you come here to listen to me, to hear an honest take on what's going on, to get the truth, the facts about things. And to clear clear up some of the bullshit that we hear all the time coming out of this administration and Trump supporters, so honestly speaking, is where it's at. And thank you so much for joining me, man. I have so much to talk about. So much has happened in the last since the last episode. I say this all the time: a week is an eternity in politics. I might as well just put that on a loop because. <laughs> Here we are a week later, and what we once thought was a sure sh- nomination, a shoe-in with Brett Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court nominee, is now iffy. We thought that um, after the hearings there would be some resolution, perhaps there hasn't been. Uh, I'm I'm going to get into that, into my take on the Dr. Ford portion of the testimony uh, my my thoughts about Brett Kavanaugh and his performance last Thursday also I have an excellent interview with Asha Rangappa she is a CNN and national security analyst um, but she's also a former FBI agent she teaches at Yale she's really knowledgeable so coming up I have an interview with her to kind of break down everything that's going on with this FBI investigation what it means, what's um, true, what's not about the FBI's role. It's, um, it's really good. So stay tuned for that. I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. There's a couple things before I get into the Kavanaugh stuff because I'm telling you, this is an exhausting week for, on a number of levels. It was, this week was just emotionally exhausting. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think the country was emotionally exhausted. The, the discussion about sexual assault And the Me Too movement and the impact that it's had on survivors, I think, was also elevated in this past week. I thought the way that the Republicans handled everything was disgusting and very upsetting, very upsetting. To the point where after that hearing on Thursday and after watching Republicans give their speeches during the Judiciary Committee vote on Friday morning, by the time they were done, I texted my mom and I said, I'm half a step away from unregistering as a Republican. It's uh, weighed very heavily on me. Um, I, and then the Jeff Flake thing happened. <laughs> but I'll get to that in a second. But that's how serious this last week was for me on a number of levels. Before I get to that, My Giants lost again, so I had to deal with that. We had a nice weekend here in Washington. It was beautiful for once. We saw some sun, no humidity. It was beautiful. I was all happy. My husband and I had our Giants gear on, all excited to watch the Giants game, and the freaking guys lost again. They're killing me. We need an offensive line, and we need a new quarterback, period. Period. That was a winnable game against the Saints. Shout out to any of my Listeners who live in New Orleans or Saints fans, you know, good for you guys. But I'm salty about it. I had high hopes for this season, and it's slipping away already. We're only in week what four, three or four? Ugh. Four. Yeah. It looks like I've finally won one in my fantasy league too. I'm I'm doing terribly in fantasy league, so my reprieve in life from politics is sports, and even that's going to hell. And I'm Trump just because. I'm just kidding. Um, it's my Giants update. But something else happened over the weekend that I have to talk about really quickly. I cannot let this go before I get into my whole Kavanaugh, Dr. Ford, sexual assault stuff. Did anybody else watch the bonkers rally that Trump gave in West Virginia over the weekend? I did not because I went to a concert with some of my girlfriends. I needed to step away from politics for a little bit. and I went to go see former uh, members of New Edition and a couple of others, and it was great. Throwback to the 90s R&B music, and we had a blast. Ronnie, Bobby, Ricky, and Mike, it was awesome. Um, so, but I read the next day that Donald Trump actually said that he fell in love. Who did he fall in love with? I was very curious. I said, what is this Donald Trump talking about he fell in love? What did he fall in love with? Who? This fool said that he fell in love with North Korea dictator Kim Jong-un. Yes, you heard me correctly. If you don't believe me, Google it. You can hear it from his own mouth. But I will quote what he said. He said, we were going back and forth, and then we fell in love, okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters, and they're great letters. We fell in love. What is this, Walden's Pond? What? How, first of all, and my husband looked at me when we, when I played the clip for him, he said, I'm sorry, but that, that just sounds weird coming from one man to another a straight man. Anyway, what? I said, yeah, I know. And then the president of the United States talking about that with, to a murderous dictator, enemy of the United States. What the hell is wrong with Donald Trump? We fell in love. There, there's just so many things that upset me about that. Because what is it about Donald Trump that causes him to suck up to these disgusting human beings? It's, I don't understand why Trump supporters seem to think that this is okay. There's nothing normal about an American president talking in such glowing terms about people who are enemies of our country. No, that's not being diplomatic. You can be diplomatic without kissing ass. I don't understand this. It's Putin. It's, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un. What, what is the obsession? It's disgusting. And it all goes back to, I think, Trump's narcissism. All you have to do is butter him up, say a couple nice things, and that's it. That's all he needs. It's, it, it, that feeds his ego. That's such a scary trait, especially in a, in a president, because you're supposed to represent the values of the United States. Saying that you're in love with a murderous, insane dictator like Kim Jong-un, who's a cruel, horrible person. I mean, do people, I don't know if everybody really, truly understands what a horrific regi- regime North Korea is. I encourage everyone to just like take a moment one day and just read about some of the god-awful human rights violations in, in North Korea. And some of the w- just wacky, ridiculous, scary stuff that goes on there. I mean, they are the worst of the worst. It's one of the worst places in the world. People are starving to death. People are so they're they're so hungry that they eat bugs. They eat dirt. Okay? So this is who Donald Trump is, falling in lo- is fell in love with, allegedly? Get the hell out of here. He fell in love because the guy wrote him some, some letters. They are on their way to getting a nuclear bomb that could potentially reach United States soil. They are a threat to that region of the world. And you're in love with them because he wrote you some letters? Come on, come on. You know, there's a really good story um, in the National Review by Jay Nordlinger where he writes about, it's called Love in North Korea, where he writes about the accounts of, of a couple of defectors, and it's very difficult to defect from North Korea. But the stories are heartbreaking, what these people have gone through, what their families go through, and how it's a, it's a cult, basically. You, you cannot say anything out of turn about the regime there. I don't know, maybe that's what Donald Trump is enamored with. He's kind of alluded to that a couple times. I think he alluded to that during the Singapore summit. That he likes the idea that everybody is, uh, you know, in agreement and there's no dissent, which is very un-American. But, you know, this fawning over murderous dictators is, it just goes so against our American values of freedom. You know, individual human rights, God-given inalienable rights. And and that's another part of the Trump presidency that I just don't understand how conservatives have been willing to overlook. They're just willing to overlook like all the things that we that we supposed to be the foundation of our of our Republican principles. They just don't care. That's why I call it a cult. And I still will call it a cult. Love. We fell in love. I, I, I encourage folks to go read the Love in North Korea article by Jay Nordlinger. It's an easy read in National Review. And just get a sense of some of the disgusting, horrible things that North Koreans are put through at the hands of the Kim regime. And you can realize that there's something something really wrong with Donald Trump's affinity and affection for these pieces of shit. Because that's what they are. I just don't get it. And Trump wonders why the world laughs at him. His supporters wonder why the world laughs at him. Well, guess what? They're laughing at him and they're laughing at you because you guys put him in office. I didn't vote for him. (laughs) This is one of many reasons. But since we're on the subject of love, I just just had to bring that up because I just thought it was so outrageous. And it, it pretty much got um, overshadowed by all of the Kavanaugh, uh, updates and, and moving parts of that whole thing. And I mean, some people picked it up, but I, I, it, that would have been a much bigger story if we weren't in the middle of the Kavanaugh saga for sure. So falling in love with murderous dictators. No, that's not good, but you know what would be good? Falling in love with your new blinds. That's why blindsgalore.com is around. Blinds Galore was the first place to buy custom window coverings online, so they know what they're doing. Not only have they been in business for over 20 years and have covered over 2 million windows, they're a family owned business, so they know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right price. They make it so easy. Blinds Galore creates 100% custom window treatments built to your exact measurements down to every detail. You get professional designer quality products, but not at designer prices. In fact, they beat the big box store prices. Blindsgalore.com, they're hand-built from scratch, all of their products. They're delivered right to your door and created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone, whatever suits your interests. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. If you don't like your custom blinds or shades for any reason at all, They're the wrong color, you measured them wrong, you don't like the style, you can just exchange them for any covering for absolutely free. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of their free expertise. Sounds like a great deal. It doesn't matter, doesn't get any better than that. Whether you need more privacy to sleep in or just to fix up a room, BlindsGalore.com has just what you're looking for. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. So go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know I, Tara Setmayer, sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. All right, let's talk about the Kavanaugh hearings. Last Thursday was a pretty emotional day not just for me, but I think for a lot, of, a lot of people across the country. And I just think it was the raw emotion of the subject matter, of the political stakes. And it was interesting to see how many people just were treated to their own corners and just unwilling to have any open mind about sexual assault. The way that victims or survivors, depending on how you want to phrase it, handle that, how they how they process emotional trauma. There was just so much that seemed to be on trial, you know. And without going over the whole thing, um, I think it's been talked about ad, na- ad nauseum at this point, but just some of my quick observations. I found Dr. Ford to be, Dr. Christine Ford, to be credible. I just don't see why anyone would want to put themselves through what she went through, what her family's been going through on a national stage like that. I mean, the poor woman was terrified. I, I thought she was going to have a panic attack because she had to sit there for half an hour while Republican, while the Republican-ranking um, chairman, Grassley, and the Democrat-ranking member, Dianne Feinstein, read through their opening statements. It was a half an hour, and like all the cable stations had a split screen, and the poor woman- Was like open mouth breathing, short breaths. I thought she was gonna have a panic attack. I kept saying, "Oh my god, please don't like get up and run out of the room." But she kept it together. I give her credit. I give her credit, and I really just don't don't see how any objective observer could possibly not think she was brave or courageous. I mean, that's not easy to do. Most people don't like speaking in public. Imagine in that on that level. So I give her a lot of credit for keeping it together, and she kept it together. But she was incredibly emotional also as she as she retold her story about the alleged sexual assault by Brett Kavanaugh. And she said she she's 100 percent certain it was him. So after that, it was an, it was such an emotional roller coaster that day. A bunch of my political friends and I were texting back and forth and we were saying, oh, Kavanaugh's toast. There's no way. What could he possibly say? What could he do to counter what she just did? And and what I heard that the Republicans were pretty demoralized. They thought this is over because her testimony was that compelling. I mean, even Trump admitted that she was compelling, said she was a good person, which I almost fell over. He's never said that about an accuser before. Any accuser, not any of his own or anybody else's, like never. So that was interesting. But anyway, um, but he still backs Kavanaugh. But then... So I, so here's a quick story. So I was in New York most of last week and I wasn't supposed to come back until Saturday. But CNN, um, you know, we have a New York bureau, we have a DC bureau. So normally it's not a big deal if I'm in New York. Well, of course on Thursday, all the major primetime anchors were in Washington because of the hearings. So I had to cancel my whole day and haul ass back to DC to make sure I got there in time to be on air Thursday night. And I'm glad because I, I felt very strongly about what had taken place and I wanted to make sure that I was, that I was heard and that um, the viewers heard my perspective on it. And so I was on Don Lemon and um, you guys can go back and watch that. I was very vocal about how I felt. And one of the points that I made was about more so about Kavanaugh because the way he came out in that hearing, I mean, he was completely out of control. Out of control, and it was a side of Brett Kavanaugh that I don't think anyone had ever seen publicly. Certainly not the same Brett Kavanaugh who we saw on Fox News, who tried to pretend that he was some, you know, virtuous uh, virgin that didn't really drink and he didn't do anything wrong and there with his wife and he was very calm and almost robotic. And his his performance was panned by the president from what the reporting says Trump wasn't happy with that he didn't fight enough well it looks like Kavanaugh got the message because he came out in a rage yelling yelling through a large portion of his opening statement and then it took a weird twist where he started this like crying sniveling thing through the whole thing and anybody you saw Saturday Saturday Night Live over the weekend oh my god matt damon nailed it nailed it nailed it um yeah it was about like that and some of the things that matt damon said and some of his responses and the joke to, to back to senators i mean brett kavanaugh actually said these things uh, it was it was crazy but he started like crying i mean he cried more through his statement than dr ford did through hers it was very bizarre, very bizarre, swinging back and forth from one emotion to the other. But the point was that he was not in control. And I tweeted through this and now I was driving, so I shouldn't have been tweeting, but I was. I was driving while, and listening to the testimony initially. And then as it became more and more nutso, I actually took my, I have two phones. I took my other phone. I put it on my dashboard and I put the video on so I could watch it live stream so I could see. And, it, it, and that was even crazier. I said, oh my God, this guy looks like, I don't know. I, this is what I said on CNN. I said his behavior, his temperament, that became an issue for me at that point. Forget everything else. I mean, you know, all of all those other things are, are a problem too. But the fact that he was that out of control showed me that he is, he does have the capacity to become very belligerent and aggressive, which lended more credibility to Dr. Ford's account of what happened to her with him throwing her on a bed and trying to take her clothes off and putting his hand over her mouth so no one could hear her scream. I think a lot of people thought, oh, this guy, he's not doing that. Well, that guy at the hearing, I could see maybe doing that. And some people are trying to say, I'm not the only one who tweeted that or, or alluded to that. A bunch of other people did too. I'm not the only one who noticed this. And some of Kavanaugh's supporters were saying, oh, that's ridiculous. How dare you? That's a sick comparison. Is it? Is it really all that out of the realm of possibility? I don't think so. And is that the kind of person you want on the Supreme Court? Judicial temperament matters. And guess what? Republicans brought up temperament during other Supreme Court nominee hearings on the other side about Democrat nominees. They brought that up. I think it was uh, Sotomayor, actually, during her nomination. Republicans brought that up, temperament. Well, I think that's a fair thing. You know what else I think is fair? Partisanship. That is a fair scrutiny. Let me tell you something. I mean, everyone knows that that Supreme Court justices have a worldview, right? They might lean left, they might lean right, but that's usually with judicial philosophy. Brett Kavanaugh was a political operative early on in his career. He worked in the Bush White House. He was President George W. Bush's staff secretary. He worked with Ken Starr during the Clinton impeachment hearings. This guy is a savvy political operative and every ounce of his partisanship came out during that opening statement, every ounce of it. How is he supposed to be an impartial arbiter of the law with that kind of a political attack? I mean, he went off on on, people are upset because Trump won. This is, you know, payback from the Clintons. I mean, it sounded like an Alex Jones episode. It was nuts or straight out of the Trump playbook or Brett Kavanaugh is a political hack. I don't want someone that partisan, and I'm a, I'm a conservative. I think probably his judicial philosophy is something that I agree with uh, mostly. I think he's qualified there. But I don't want someone that I have to question that their partisanship is getting in the way of their ability to fairly apply the law. I don't want that. I wouldn't want that on the other side. So that was another problem for me. Something else that I found troubling, to say the least, besides the fact that he acted like a maniac, well, let me just say something else about that, too. Some people, his his supporters said, well, you would act like that, too, if your name and reputation was being dragged through the mud and you were being accused of being a rapist and X, Y, and Z, and your whole career was being, was being destroyed as a result of it. Yes and no. There are ways that you can vehemently defend your honor and your family without being a crazed lunatic and also... You're auditioning for one of the highest positions in this country, a lifelong appointment on the Supreme Court. Your temperament matters. How you handle challenge matters. So I don't want to hear that. And you know what he could have done? He could have been just as impassioned through that whole opening statement and said, and that's why I am fully supportive of an FBI investigation being reopened into my background to clear my name because I'm innocent. If you would have said that, I think people, some folks might have gotten past his, his antics. But he didn't do that. He was still defiant. And throughout that hearing and throughout the questioning, he could not answer that. That was something glaring to me. When the questioning between him and Dick Durbin took place, he, Dick Durbin, I, and if you haven't seen it, I suggest you guys go back and watch it. Senator Dick Durbin basically flat out asked him, okay, you know what, We're, if, you, if you're if you so sure, wouldn't you want the FBI to do a thorough investigation so you could be exonerated? And he would not answer the question. He was so evasive Dick Kavanaugh. He said, well, I'll do whatever the committee wants. I've already been subject to six FBI background investigations. And D- Dick Durbin finally got frustrated and said, no, I want to know what you think. And he wouldn't answer. Why? That's strange to me. That doesn't sit right. If I know I'm 100% innocent and there's nothing that anyone's going to find, and I've been wrongly accused, that my whole life, my family, everything is, you know, being destroyed over a false accusation, then you damn well better believe I'd want every opportunity to clear my name, including an independent investigation by the FBI. What are they afraid of? What is Kavanaugh afraid of? Well, I think he's afraid that the FBI would find something because he was asked about his yearbook and he was asked about some of the entries there. He just wasn't truthful about it. He wasn't. The stuff about the devil triangle and I'm not going to get into what, the, what they really mean and all that. You can look that up yourselves. But let's just say that the devil's triangle ain't a drinking game. boofing ain't farting. And ralphing is not because you have a weak stomach. And I think the argument, and Senator Blumenthal brought this up. And now, you know, Senator Blumenthal has his own issues in his past about being truthful about stuff, but that doesn't mean he didn't bring up a good point during this hearing. He brought up the jury instruction, and he said it in Latin, and I'm not going to attempt to repeat it in Latin, the phrase. But basically, he brought up the point that if you, it's a jury instruction that's given out, usually. That you, if, if someone lies small in a small thing, that you can actually take it into consideration about their truthfulness and other things. And uh, that is, I think, a fair principle. Why would you lie about small things? How am I supposed to, like the small inconsequential things? There's no reason to lie about that stuff. So then I'm supposed to say, well, you lied about that, but I'm going to believe you about the bigger stuff. No, that's not how it works. I mean, it's not even logical. And now it's interesting that the, the the conversation about Kavanaugh and the court has shifted from did he do this sexual assault stuff to his credibility? Is he lying? Is he telling the truth? His drinking habits in, in at Yale, that was another thing. He kept going on about beer and how much he liked beer. Well, for someone who was trying to say that he didn't like, drink in excess or to the point where he didn't remember things he really went on and on about he was like very adamant about how much he liked beer to the point where he like screamed back at senator klobuchar who had just gotten done talking about how her father was an alcoholic and at 90 he still goes to aa so how she has alcoholism in her family he he asked her have you ever blacked out i mean it was a shocking moment it was so disrespectful I heard from a source that after that exchange, that's another one folks should go back and watch. They didn't see it with between Kavanaugh and Klobuchar. One of my Republican friends told me that Senator Santorum sent a text message over to Kavanaugh's people and said, he must, he's got to apologize for that. That was out of line. So if you notice, when they came back from a break, Brett Kavanaugh actually did apologize for Senator Klobuchar for stepping over the line. So, I mean, again, out of control. Now, this—the why does this matter? A lot of people are like, well, you know, they're going back to his yearbook, you know, his high school, is ridiculous. No, because now it's become about lack of candor, which is a term that the FBI uses when they do uh, security clearance background checks. If they found that you've lied about something, they consider that lack of candor, and that's disqualifying, usually, for a security clearance. That's not even as important as supreme court lifetime appointment. So, lack of candor. It matters. It all matters because it tells you about his character and character matters. And I want you to th- remember that uh, people who are Trump supporters or, you know, a lot of the Kavanaugh supporters, they will try to make it seem like those character issues don't matter. Why? Because they've already sold their souls with the character issue concerning Trump. So you can't apply it now to everybody else because then you're, they're going to turn around and say, well, you, well, then how come that doesn't apply to your support for Trump? So, you know, I call it unprincipled compromise. My mom posted something on Facebook that had that phrase in it, and I thought that was really good. That's what it, this is, unprincipled compromise. So much is riding on the Supreme Court nomination. Well, again, Brett Kavanaugh isn't the only one. There's others out there. But when we, And we're now, finally, it looks like we're getting... The FBI investigation that Democrats rightly requested. They were right. Republicans were off base on this. And you know what? What makes it so frustrating about them being off base about this is because the way they have approached it. You can ha- you can be upset about the way Senator Feinstein, her um, staff, or whomever leaked Dr. Ford's name or held on to the information. That's a legitimate argument politically. But once we found out that this allegation was credible, the FBI investigation should have happened then, two and a half weeks ago. We wouldn't we wouldn't be going through this circus now if they had done that. But I think Republicans in the White House, they didn't want the investigation. They wanted to push this through because you know, when you start poking around, you find out more stuff. And that's exactly what's been going on since last Thursday. Other folks who went to, other students who went to Yale with... um. Kavanaugh they came out and said we watched the hearing and he was lying we were there with him at Yale drinking with him I've seen him drink to excess I've seen him act crazy I've seen him even we have two Lynn Brooke came forward she said she wasn't going to initially but she she her and other students were texting each other after the hearing saying we can't believe how how, how dishonest he was so she finally came out publicly another woman came out publicly And then another, uh, uh, um, another guy recently, I think his name is Charles Ludington. He wrote, he said that he was trying to get in touch with the FBI to tell them what he knew. And he gave an example of a party where he was socializing with Brett Kavanaugh. They were all drunk and Kavanaugh actually threw a beer in a guy's face because of some, a comment that someone made and started a brawl. And one of their friends ended up in jail as a result of it. Hmm. I think that's relevant. Don't you? I do. Establishes a pattern of behavior to me. So these people were having, you know, difficulty getting in touch with the FBI prior to finally, on Friday, uh, a call for the FBI to further investigate, reopen the background investigation. Now, how did that happen? Well, dramatic events on Friday. I was pretty despondent Friday morning after I, I heard all of the, the speeches by the Republicans and Lindsey Graham, another one who just completely flipped out during the hearing. And the you know, the, the just doubling and tripling down on all of this, you can't say that you support Dr. Ford or believe her. But then you also believe Brett Kavanaugh. No, it, it can't be both that's bullshit. Okay, it can't be both. No, she's not cre- Oh, she's credible. And she was compelling. But you believed him more is the bottom line. Because you have an agenda. And I made the point on CNN that Dr. Kavanaugh's life and her family and what she's gone through is just as important as what Brett Kavanaugh went through and is going through. I'm sorry. It is. I don't want to hear all this outrage about how a good man's life is being destroyed because of what? Because of some unsubstantiated allegation. It's more than that. And I I just didn't like that attitude because what message did that send to women in this country? What message did that send to women who have survived sexual assault? I mean, obviously they didn't get what the Me Too movement was about. Well, you know who was a direct recipient of the wrath of women concerning this very issue? Senator Jeff Flake. Now, I hadn't seen the confrontation on the elevator with the two women when it happened in real time. And I don't know what I was doing, but I missed it. And I saw the headlines that he had been confronted. And I saw that, you know, during the hearing, because it was live, it was broadcast live, that he looked really like, like there was this look of shame on his face while he was sitting there in the hearing before the vote. And then I saw him get up at one point, tap Senator Coons, Democrat from Delaware, on the shoulder, and they stepped out of the hearing room. Well, after that, Jeff Flake, a couple, I don't know, about an hour later, Jeff Flake comes back, maybe less than that, and... He says, cause he, he initially, well, let me back up. So everyone had been focusing on what Senator Flake from Arizona was going to do because he sits on the judiciary committee. He's a Republican and he's retiring and he's been at odds with, with Donald Trump on a lot of stuff. And he's gone to the Senate floor and he's given very lofty speeches condemning Trump and Trumpism and basically what it's doing to this country. And I've, you know, I've had my differences with Jeff Flake over the year, over the years, but I've agreed with him on Trump. He's, he's right. So we were, you know, paying attention. What's, what's Flake going to do? And then also what Senators Mikowski and Collins are going to do to Republican female senators. So the spotlight was on Flake. Well, after Kavanaugh gave his testimony, it seemed to recharge Republicans and give them cover to support him. And then Flake came out in the morning and said that he was going to vote yes. That was so terribly disappointing. Really disappointing. And then, like I said, the sequence of events happened. And after he'd said yes, that's when these two brave women confronted him on an elevator as he was trying to get to the committee room. That confrontation, I think, changed the course of this entire episode. Who were those two brave women? Well, the first woman, her name was Anna Maria Archilla. And she confronted Jeff Flake about her own sexual assault and told him, listen, you've got children. What what are we What message are we sending to them? You know, she was a victim. And then you had another, a second woman who came in. Her name was Maria Gallagher. And I finally saw this. This was about one o'clock when I saw the actual video. And when I watched it, I broke down in tears. I mean, blubbering as I listened to these two women. Jeff Flake was cornered in, in this elevator, couldn't get away. And he just looked down in absolute shame. And what Maria Gallagher said that moved me so much was when she said, look me in the face And tell me that my sexual assault didn't matter. Because by you supporting Kavanaugh, you're telling me that what I went through and what other women like me have gone through doesn't matter and that you're still going to reward men with power who do these things. Let me tell you why that was so emotional for me. It affected me because my mom is a victim of a survivor I should say of, uh, sexual assault, not once, but twice. And I mentioned this briefly on CNN. One of the, the, um, incidents that I'd known about where my mom went to a doctor, a prominent doctor in our hometown. And she was very young in her, in her early, no, mid twenties because I was already alive. So yeah, mid twenties. And she went in for a cold and this doctor tried to perform a vaginal exam on her. And she was like, what? And she shoved this doctor against the wall, got dressed, and ran out of that doctor's office. She never told anyone. She thought, who's going to believe me? You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm single. I have a biracial child. No one's going to, who's going to believe me? You're not going to believe me. And the sad part about that is that my grandfather was captain of the police department in our hometown. My mom could have easily told him, but she didn't. Because she felt shame. She felt ashamed. She felt embarrassed. And she didn't think anybody would believe her. So she just tucked it away. And she told me that, you know, she still cringes a little bit when she drives down the road where that doctor's office was. And she said that, you know, he was elderly. I don't want to say elderly. He was probably like in his sixties back then. I was elderly, sorry, Mom, like she's in her sixties now. <laughs> but um, he was older. <laughs> He was older back then. So this was, we're talking almost 40 years ago. And so she figures he's dead by now. But she said that, you know, a couple years ago, she thought about marching in there and saying something. But she didn't. So I knew about that. But it wasn't until Thursday evening after the Kavanaugh hearing and the way he behaved and the way that the Republicans were just kind of so dismissive. I mean, they tried to act like they were empathetic to Dr. Ford and what she went through. But I feel like that was, that that was lip service because her, what she went through was getting in the way of their agenda. She was a nuisance and she, and they treated it as such, but she told me, my mom told me that there was another incident that happened to her while she was pregnant with me. She told me that she was over a friend's house and, um, People were drinking, obviously she wasn't, she was pregnant with me, and they were drunk. And one guy pulled a gun and put it to my mom's head and said, I want you to perform a sex act so I can watch it with someone else who was there. And my mom said, what? No, you're gonna have to kill me because that's not gonna happen. And she was able to escape from that place and run for her life while she was pregnant with me. And she was worried about the stress of that, about you know, am I gonna lose my baby? What's gonna happen? You know, my mom is no wallflower. Okay, she produced me, <laughs> so my mom is not some weak woman like people are trying to say about Dr. Ford or or, or other women who don't come forward right away. Well, what the hell they wait so long for? And I would have told someone. Yeah, easy for you to say unless you're in you're in that position. Okay, so stop passing judgment on people. Everybody processes trauma differently and there are studies that have been done that show this, why sexual assault victims wait for so long. But my mom told me about this and she'd never revealed that to me before. But she felt it was important enough to reveal it to me now because she said that she started to relive a little bit of those traumas in her life watching Dr. Ford's testimony. And that's so... It got back that this happened to my mom from, I don't know who, but, um, to my grandfather, who I mentioned was captain of the police department. And that per the person who pulled the gun actually tried to say it was somebody else who did it. Somebody else that was black at, at, at the gathering. And my mom told my grandfather, absolutely not. That's not how it went. And my grandfather did not believe her. So no wonder my mom didn't say anything when a couple years later, the sexual assault happened in that doctor's office. Her own father didn't believe her. Imagine the trauma. Imagine that. So she's not the only one that's gone through these kinds of things before. And I asked my mom, and obviously I was like, my heart broke for my mom. And I asked her, I said, Mom, do you remember like what day of the week it was, what you wore, what the weather was like outside. Like, do you remember those kind of details? And she goes, not really, but I'll tell you what, to this day, I still cringe when I see fat hairy fingers on a man because I sure as hell remember those fat stubby fingers from that guy on that gun when he put it to my head, you know? (laughs) So I don't, I have very little patience for people who are so quick to dismiss sexual assault victims and their accounts and why they wait. I do. I just really have very little patience for that because it's impacted my own family. Now, thankfully, I've never been in a situation as traumatic as that, but thousands of women have. And when I heard that woman say, you're telling me, look me in the eye, Senator, and tell me my assault didn't matter. I know I felt my mom's pain. Because that's how she felt. And the message that the Republican Party has given to women who have been survivors of sexual assault is that it doesn't matter if it gets in the way of, you know, if you come forward and it gets in the way of a powerful person getting uh, elevated to whatever position or promoted. You know, why would you come forward? And that's horrible. And I've got news for you. Going into the midterm elections, suburban independent women are going to make the difference in some of these swing districts in Ohio, in New Jersey, in Nevada, in places where Republicans have either or have open seats because so many Republicans have retired, and where Democrats actually have a chance to win some of these seats. Don't be surprised if if women are make the difference in these places. And this whole episode will be the fuel. And they deserve Republicans freaking deserve to lose to lose the house this, this November. I don't want us to lose the Senate. We need some balance, but the house for sure, they should absolutely lose it. They've got to pay a price for this kind of arrogance and defiance in this era of Trumpism. It's awful. It is tearing our country apart. And that those two women, those brave women who, in my opinion, demonstrated one of the most courageous democratic acts of confronting our elected officials and holding them accountable. They turn the tide on this whole thing. I don't know. We still don't know what the result will be. I mean, by the time next week's episode comes out, the FBI investigation should be concluded and we a vote, I guess, will happen unless something is revealed. But those two women are the reason why Senator Flake, he felt so bad. He was so convicted by what they did he couldn't stand it anymore. And he tapped his friend, Senator Coons, the Democrat, reached across the aisle to, to call, come out and call for a pause in the whole thing. And let's have a damn FBI investigation, which should have happened weeks ago. I mean, I called Jeff Flake all kinds of names in the morning <laughs> for saying he was going to vote yes before he did this. And I give him some credit for at least getting this, this FBI investigation rolling. However, As Chris Rock said in his stand-up years ago, I'm not going to give you a cookie for what you're supposed to do. He should have done this before that. It should not have taken a public shaming caught by cameras from CNN to get you to do the right thing. But at least now we have an FBI investigation. And over the weekend, there was a lot of back and forth with reporting about what the limitations of that investigation would be. And it looks like, you know, initially it was reported that they couldn't look into Kavanaugh's drinking, they could only interview four witnesses, but it looks like now, according to the New York Times, that the president has decided that, look, give the FBI whatever free reign they need, some, some scope, some limited scope, but they can, invent, they can interview whoever they need to. And the president came out during a press conference on one day and basically said, look, I'm all for a comprehensive investigation. Why not? That's not exactly what, his, what the what the Republicans or, or Senator, uh, I'm sorry, Judge Kavanaugh's supporters were saying. They were all about limiting it in scope. They think, oh, it's going to be a witch hunt again. And then the president comes out during a press conference and says, yeah, you know what? I don't care. Let them interview whoever they need to interview because I believe, uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh and I, I think it'll be good for him. Really? I don't know about that. I'm not so sure. Like I said earlier, more and more people are coming out and talking about Brett Kavanaugh's drinking and how he's behaved while drunk. Jeff Flake Jeff and Senator Coons, they were on 60 Minutes together over the weekend. Basically, Jeff Flake said that if something comes out during the, during the FBI investigation to show that Brett Kavanaugh lied about anything, that would be disqualifying. Will it? I think most senators already are going to do what they're going to do. There's only a handful that could derail this, this confirmation. That's Flake, Ka- um, Murkowski, Collins, and uh, probably just those those three, because it doesn't look like any Democrats are going to vote for him. Pretty much they've already said they're not going to. Like, I, I don't know if Ma- Joe Manchin has come out definitively yet or not. But Joe Manchin, there's a, there, he, a lot of the gap, because he's winning right now in West Virginia, he's a Democrat, and it's because of women who support him. So I don't see Joe Manchin supporting Kavanaugh after all of this, but we'll see. So it looks like now, much to the chagrin probably of Brett Kavanaugh and his supporters, he's gonna get a full background check investigation And um, does that mean they're going to interview Mark Judge and his ex-girlfriend, Elizabeth Razor, who claimed that Mark Judge told her about a gang bang situation with the woman and how he felt bad about it? She said he told her this years ago when they dated. They dated for three years. And she'd been trying to tell this story to the FBI. And it was very difficult for her to get anyone to listen to her. Same thing with Charles um, Ludington, the Yale student who said that he witnessed Brett Kavanaugh get aggressive and, and start a brawl while he was drunk. He got the around trying to talk to the FBI and give them that information. Well, now that the president of the United States, who has the power to give the, to set the parameters for the most part for the FBI, he seems to be okay with a comprehensive investigation and interview whoever you need. Will that come back to bite Brett Kavanaugh? We'll see. But in that vein, who better to have on the program this week than Asha Rangappa? She is a fellow CNNer. She's an analyst for CNN. And uh, not only that, she's also a professor at Yale for their Institute for Global Affairs. She, she was an associate dean for Yale Law School. She's a Fulbright Scholar, Princeton grad, but she also was a former special agent for the FBI. She worked in the New York Division, the Counterintelligence Division in New York, and she's a trailblazer of sorts. She uh, was the first Indian American woman to graduate from Quantico. So I thought, who better than Asha Rangappa to join me on this week's episode of Honestly Speaking to talk about the FBI, the investigation and Just what the hell is going on with all of this? So without further ado, Asha Rangappa. So this week, I felt it was really important to have a badass woman on the program, someone who's accomplished, smart, and honest. And this week's guest is Asha Rangappa who is a fellow CNN contributor. So we are colleagues over at CNN, but she brings so much more to the table. Uh, She's a professor at Yale Institute of Global Affairs. She was an associate dean at Yale Law School. She was a former special agent at the FBI in the New York division, focusing on counterintelligence. She's a Fulbright Scholar, Princeton grad, Now, this is the kind of woman that people need to hear from when we are having the kinds of conversations that we've been having lately as an authority on what's going on. I just don't think that we have enough smart voices coming from women talking about some pretty serious issues that are facing this country. So this week, I'm so, so pleased to have Asha Rangappa as my guest. Asha, thank you for joining me on Honestly Speaking.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we were joking a little bit about the kind of week we've had with the Kavanaugh hearings, even what's gone on with Rosenstein, that roller coaster. And you were saying to me that you just rebooted on your 30 day cleanse with your cleanse with your uh, trainer and you can't drink.
1: Yes, it's (laughs) such a bad time. Terrible timing. I know, I know. Don't worry.
0: I'll I'll I will have a drink or two for you because after the the last week, it's real. I just don't know how that we keep up this pace.
1: I think it's mentally exhausting for everyone, and just not not healthy for the country. I think
0: no, it's not. And I've said this. And, and how many times have we found ourselves in a situation where we reflect on the week prior and go, "Holy shit! Like th- that was just a week ago." I, it, it's just far too often, in my opinion. Yes, I agree, I agree. Uh, um, but the most recent, and I've said this many times before, and people who listen to my podcast know that I always say that a week in politics is an eternity. And every week, that axiom proves true. The uh, Where were we a week ago compared to now? It's hard to imagine. We thought that Brett Kavanaugh was a shoo-in, as the next Supreme Court justice. That's right. Then we had an accuser come forward. Then we had two more accusers come forward. Then we had a hearing. And after the hearing, we thought, okay, he's probably still going to get confirmed because everybody lost their damn minds during this hearing on the Republican side, in my opinion. And I'm a Republican, for those who don't know that are listening. I'm a Republican and I'm disgusted by how the senators have behaved and the way that they've Behavior during this process but we thought it's a done deal and I was pretty despondent on Friday because I just felt that I can't believe that we're going to move this process through for something as important as the Supreme Court the way it's been done and then Jeff Flake has a complete turnaround because of two brave women that confronted him on an elevator who were sexual assault survivors and shamed him into doing sort of the right thing so here we are in a new week now with a potential FBI investigation going on, and I don't know what that's going to result in, but that's one of the reasons why that I felt so impassioned to have you on because of your experience with the FBI and to shed a little bit of light on, okay, now that we have the supplemental investigation, what does that mean for the Kavanaugh confirmation process?
1: Okay. Um would, do you want to start right with the investigation? or Yeah, let's of- start with that. And then I want to
0: get your thoughts on what you thought about the Kavanaugh and what you saw. But I think it's important because there's so much misinformation about the role of the FBI, what they can do, can they do it in a week? And it just seemed to me like it, it would have made the most sense to have this done weeks ago. So like, why were the Republicans so resistant into doing this? But I have my own theories on that. But let's just start with, what can the FBI actually do and what won't they do with what's happening now with the investigation?
1: Okay, so let's first understand that background checks are not criminal investigations. Background checks are run out of the administrative division of the FBI. The FBI has different divisions. They have an administrative division, criminal division, counterintelligence division, uh, counter, uh, terrorism division, um, etc., cyber intelligence. So uh, this is an administrative function. This is something that is, uh, first, the subject of a background check will have filled out a form, um, an SF-86, which asks for all kinds of information going, you know, their their phrase is, have you ever? So they have to kind of self-disclose anything uh, that might be relevant along a number of different dimensions. And then the FBI will go out and do interviews. These generally start with people that the uh, subject has indicated as references. So they'll first start with the people, you know, the subject him or herself has recommended, but then they'll ask each of those people for additional references. So they kind of keep expanding outwards until they're finally two or three degrees removed. So they're hopefully getting people who don't necessarily have, you know, a bias uh, towards giving a particular kind of information. Um, And then they compile. So more than just the
0: family and the wife who are going to say, yes, he's wonderful. Like they talk to neighbors, they talk to classmates,
1: Right. And in the course of that, if they come across what's called derogatory information, meaning that there's something that's flagged for concern, they might look into that further. So there's a mnemonic that the FBI uses in doing background checks. We got trained in this at Quantico and it's called Carla F. Bad, And Carla F. Bad stands for character, associates, reputation, loyalty, ability, finances, bias, alcohol, and drugs. So in the course of doing interviews with the references and third parties, the FBI will go through a series of open-ended questions that touch on all of these subjects. And if they come across something, if somebody says, well, yes, this person used to do drugs, then they might kind of dig into that further. It's important to remember that Background checks go back based on the agents that I've spoken to, mostly retired agents who do these, uh, go back 10 years or to age 18. So they're looking at post, uh, you know, juvenile life. Right. Uh, and then further. Normally. What's that? Normally.
0: Like normally, normally they would never think about what you did in high school because you That's were a right. minor. Exactly. So it's you're a minor,
1: you know, so they're not going to really, you know, go and inquire about that. Um and uh, in subsequent background checks, they go back 10 years. So, for example, only the earliest background check that Judge Kavanaugh would have had would have really kind of uh, possibly gone, you know, questioned his college friends and stuff. That would have been probably 25 years ago when he entered the STAR investigation. When he, you know, became a judge in 2005, Uh, or 2004, I'm not exactly sure, but they would have gone back 10 years from that point. So each subsequent investigation goes, like covers a later period of his life. So when people say, why didn't this come up? There's a number of reasons. One, this was a high school incident. Number two, you know, every investigation wouldn't have even reached back even as close to college or high school.
0: Um, That's an important point. I just want to make sure that people understand that because that's one of the talking points that the Kavanaugh supporters have thrown out there and said republicans and everybody else. Well, he's been through six background checks. Why are we doing this again? It's redundant. But I think the point that you brought up that no, these are the every single time he goes through a background check, it's a subsequent. It doesn't go back to the original. So Right.
1: They're not they're not reinventing the wheel. Right. They're they're doing this cumulatively. And so um what, what has happened now is that in this most recent background check, they did it. They compiled all of the information. Now, when they do an interview, they document the interview in something called a 302. A 302 is a, des- is a testimonial document. It basically, so if I were to interview you, Tara, we, we would talk. I would go through all my questions. I would be taking notes as we we're talking. And then I would go back and type it up. And I would type up as close, you know, based on my notes and what we discussed, what you said. So that 302 should reflect what you said uh, as accurately as possible. It would not include, I would not have my own judgments in there. Like I thought Tara was acting hinky or something like that. I would not put my own conclusions or my own, um, you know, assessment of your credibility. It would simply be what you said.
0: Is there ever a point where that happens? Because I think a lot of people really don't understand the process, which is why I'm I'm glad we're having this conversation because it's it's important for people to be informed about what actually happens. You know, a lot of folks watch CSI and they watch movies and they, you know, they think that the FBI agents are going to do this investigation and have like some kind of, aha, see, he was lying because he was sweating and uncomfortable. And, you know, that's not what happens in this kind of investigation, maybe in no. a criminal one, but not in a background one, right?
1: Well, even in a criminal one, a 302 will be only tested Testimonial. Now, if that agent, the agent who does the interview in a criminal trial may be called to the stand and there they that per, that agent may be asked about his or her own observations of the witness, for example, or the whoever it is that they talk to and they can give it. But that's not going to be uh, a part of the 302 itself. Um, so uh, this is just the facts. Uh, just what was said. And it's supposed to kind of memorialize what was said so that if that person then changes their story, you have something to look back on. Um, When the background check is complete, it's compiled into... A dossier of sorts, and it's given to the consumer or whichever is the requesting agency or entity. And here it would have been the White House. The White House would look through, it would review any derogatory information that was flagged, and decide uh, whether this person was suitable, whether there's any additional steps to be taken, um, and then make the decision. So presumably they looked at it. uh, You know, they they looked at whatever was flagged. I mean, in my opinion, I think perhaps some of uh, the financial issues that Judge Kavanaugh had with his debt might have been flagged. I know that was paid off quite quickly. Right. So um, just just so that- just to
0: just to back up for a second for those who don't know, um, during the initial confirmation process when they were vetting Judge Kavanaugh, it came up that he had some significant debt with um, sports tickets like and $200,000 right.
1: of credit card debt. Yes, right.
0: And also a rather large mortgage for um, the 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 federal judge salary that he was he was making. So he was he so he had some large debts, but like Asha said, he paid those off. But that's something that could come back up again.
1: It might come back up again, but you know the outstanding debt would have been an issue. So presumably that's why they made sure that he found a way to resolve that so that you know, it might not become an issue in the confirmation process. Um, so that, that investigation, that background check was closed, given to the FBI, They are given to the White House, they, they decided to move forward with the confirmation. So what's happening now is the White House, the original requester, consumer of that background check, has now told the FBI, okay, we wanna reopen this for, to, for you to look deeper into this specific allegation. And so what the FBI is going to do now is uh, take this allegation, identify relevant people who may have information that's relevant to it, and then go interview them. And then document those in a 302. Again, in the course of those interviews, if other leads come up, if, for example, they interview somebody who is allegedly at the party that Dr. Ford said, and you know that person says, well you know, I don't remember this, but I know that so-and-so was talking about it two days later in school, you know, they might go interview that person. So they can kind of follow, they, they are, will start with a particular circle and then based on what leads they get, kind of go from there. So Um,
0: where does the idea, and I've heard this term from other folks who have worked at the FBI or in law enforcement, the term lack of candor. What does that mean, and could that potentially be a problem for Kavanaugh based off of his testimony on Thursday?
1: Great question. So lack of candor is basically lying. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We know, uh, for example, Andrew McCabe, who was the deputy director of the FBI, got fired for lack of candor. And the issue was that in the course of investigating a leak uh, from the FBI that he was, you know, accused of being involved in, that he was dishonest with the people investigating the leak and that that was uh, grounds to fire him. Um, It's taken very seriously in the bureau. With regard to Kavanaugh, uh, what I see is that this has become a potential ancillary or kind of secondary issue that quite apart from whether, you know, how much credibility to give Dr. Ford versus him, there were a number of questions that he answered during the hearing that appear to be contradicted. Uh, for example, his pattern of drinking, um, the, the meaning of things in his yearbook. I mean, they're, they're kind of minor, but they are answers that he gave under oath. And so in the course of doing the supplemental investigation, I believe that investigators will, will ask, for example, about his pattern of drinking. Uh, Did he ever drink to excess? Did he ever pass out? Do you know him to ever have had blackouts? They might also ask about his reputation with women, um, his character. Was he ever untoward, for example? Because you want to look at whether this person had a pattern of behavior that might be consistent with what is being alleged. If it's completely out of character, that often helps the accused person because it's kind of it would be improbable that someone who has never done anything like out of the blue in one night does something. Right. And that's
0: probably, Um, and that was it. what made it so unbelievable to me and others who watched Kavanaugh in his initial hearings in that Fox interview. And then the Kavanaugh we saw at the hearing on Thursday, who was that guy? Like, where did that guy come from? That was behavior that I don't think had ever been seen publicly before he was belligerent. He was angry. He was out of control. He was partisan. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think he helped himself any coming out like that. Some would say, well, he was upset because he's wrongly accused. Wouldn't you feel the same way? You're just defending your honor. But we're talking about a job interview for one of the highest, Honors in this country, one of the most important positions, maybe next to the presidency, a lifelong appointment on the Supreme Court. Like temperament matters. So, when I saw that, it it said to me that it was plausible that there was another side of Brett Kavanaugh that could have potentially engaged in the behavior that he's being accused of. And I don't think we'd ever seen that before.
1: That's right. And I think in the course of these interviews, again, these are open-ended questions um, that will address his character and his behavior. So if if more information comes out that this is the kind of side that came out when he was drinking, for example, um, that could really uh, count against him. But I also think that give, because he gave very specific answers to certain things, um, like, you know, the meaning of, of particular items in his yearbook that I think most people (laughs) understood to have sexual connotations, (laughs) you know, and he denied that they did. I mean, those are things that, you know, could contradict, you know, his his testimony under oath. And then I think it becomes what you said. Does he have a candor issue? Uh, Whether or not this happened with Dr. Ford, did he actually lie under oath or dissemble or mislead the committee, which then I think creates its own issue? of right. his fitness for the bench, because then it's not just did this incident happen, it's can this person be trusted to tell the truth? And as you said, of all the jobs in the world, I mean, even when we now accept, or we, we're used to the lying from the president, and in some ways we we think politicians are gonna do this. You know, when we come to judges, they have to be beyond reproach partly because they have lifetime appointments and because they are adjudicating and assessing credibility and truthfulness of others so we want those people to be you know i think in my opinion a lack of candor quite apart from the doctor ford incident would be itself disqualifying sure and
0: and and i agree and that's a point that i made even before The circus that happened last week in the Senate, I I just felt that there were other aspects of of Brett Kavanaugh's testimony and his behavior that just weren't consistent the longer we started, you know, the more we looked into what went on. Um, And just like, I've always said that if he had just simply said, look, we were a little wild in high school, it was the early 80s, you know, we had a few, we might have been a little while at a couple parties. Yeah, there's some stuff I just don't remember. If I ever did anything that was disrespectful or out of line to any woman, I apologize. You know, I'm I didn't I didn't live my life that way. Um, you know, if he had just demonstrated I, some culpability, not uh, necessarily admitting, but just some no, we wouldn't be here right now, I don't think. I
1: think what you're saying is a certain amount of humility. Yes. Um, Humanity would have, I think, diffused this entirely. I agree. Made what you know. If it did happen, it wouldn't have made it okay. But as you said, I don't know how old you are, Tara. But I'm I'm, I'm
0: forty three.
1: Okay, I'm forty three too. So okay. you and I, we grew up. I mean. Come on, the eighties. I mean, we we were not supervised. Um, There was a lot of drinking. You know, I went to Princeton and the culture there. You know, Tara. I mean, I went to
0: George Washington and we were like the number one party school in the mid nineties. You know, you did.
1: I'm sorry, but you did stupid shit. And you know, and it was it was also a time. This was before me to. Guys were raunchy and and they they did dumb stuff, and there was a whole culture also the cool girl thing where you kind of went along and laughed along. I mean, we were all complete like right like that, the point I cra- is that we I cra- all, cra- right. a lot of it, and what you want is for him to say exactly what you said, like I did some stupid, dumb ass stuff, and you know, I'm not proud of it. and as you said, like I don't recall this. I don't believe I could have ever you done anything like awesome. this, but if if this were true, you know, I, you know, I'm sorry, sorry.
0: or, you know, I, this is the message for other young men. You know, I learned my lesson, look at the life I've led. And then you see that apparently he's had a very exemplary career that we know of. And I think that people could say, okay, but the, the but the posture that they took of doubling down on this choir boy, no, I could never, uh, you know, very Puritan lifestyle. Get the hell out of here. Nobody believes that. And so that, I think that opened the door for him to present other problems outside, like you said, outside of just the Ford allegations, which were troubling enough and may never be proven. We'll, we may never know. But some of these other things that in a security clearance background investigation would be disqualifying, never mind for a SCOTUS appointment, lifetime appointment. Can they do this in a week, Asha?
1: I think they could. I mean, remember before the election, they did all hands on deck to go through whatever tens of thousands of Emails, um, you know, that uh, moment in history. But I mean, I think when the FBI wants to do something, they can do something. And these are interviews. This is the bread and butter of what the FBI does. It's I don't think it's that many people. Uh, Typically, interviews are conducted in groups of two, though, sometimes for background checks. Um, I mean, when I have had FBI agents come and interview me for, for example, former students who are seeking positions or getting clearances. Um, It's usually been one agent. So if that's the case, then they can, you know, spread their resources even further. And I think they could do it. I mean, I think the question is, if more derogatory information that is concerning, comes right. up. What happens That's then? That's question. I mean, they can do it if this is all the people they need to interview and it resolves it or, you know, they get, there's no, there's no further leads to pursue. If more comes up and then there's kind of hanging threads, that is when it becomes a problem to keep to this one week deadline.
0: When you were watching the hearings on Thursday, um, I, I, I can assume that you felt that Dr. Ford was credible
1: so I have seen only portions of her testimony what um, do you I, mean what you're a tra- bad American tra- Asha no I was giving a talk actually to a group of women in New York a uh, lesson and then had to catch a plane so yeah. I was
0: you had a real life, actually. You weren't glued <laughs> to the TV like the rest of us who so, said, Oh my God.
1: You know, I saw portions. I saw people's reactions. Um, and you know, uh, I've seen more quite frankly of, uh, Kavanaugh's. Okay. Uh, well, that's
0: fine. Cause that's where I was going to go. I was kind of going to just yeah. leave it that d-
1: <laughs> I think th- most,
0: re- most objective obzer- observers watched who watched Dr. Ford's testimony felt that she was compelling, incredible. Um, so we're gonna leave that there. Only the crazies think that she made this all up and she was some kind of actress, you know that that came up with this whole story. But the <laughs> she's Kav- the next Meryl Streep, right? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> give me a break. Um, yeah. But I'm interested in your gut reaction to what you saw when you saw Kavanaugh's testimony. Like, what was your initial gut reaction?
1: Okay, so let me rewind um, and kind of give you my evolution on kind of where I've ended up with Judge Kavanaugh. So, uh, you know, I know Judge Kavanaugh from a professional setting. Um, you had mentioned that I was an associate dean at Yale Law School. Right. He's an alumnus of Yale Law School. He's told us uh, several times. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? He, he's he's exactly. reminded us
0: many, you know, many times that he's he a was, Yale school he, graduate. He was
1: a, he was a good, committed alum. He would come back. He would uh, recruit clerks from the Federalist Society. And actually, he made an effort to recruit from the Black Law Students Association. Um, you know, he was trying to create pipelines for more diverse clerks. Uh, He came out, I was the dean of admissions, he came out for our admitted student program. And I had a favorable impression of him. I don't agree with his judicial philosophy, um, or his politics, but as my initial, you know, my impression of him as a person was positive. And when he And that's
0: consistent. Most people who've worked with him who may disagree with his judicial philosophy have said similar things. So that is consistent.
1: Yes, I had a positive impression of him. Um, and when he was nominated for the Supreme Court and compared to other people on the shortlist, I actually thought he was a better choice. I thought he was more moderate in many ways. Um, not that, you know, there weren't very conservative leanings that he had, but I thought all things considered, this could be, you know, if, if we we're going to have a conservative justice, and um, I thought that this could be somebody who would be you know, more open. And I I was thinking also of his willingness to come and try to, you know, he was mindful of diversity and, you know, I I felt like this was somebody who um, kind of had a bigger picture in mind of of things and would be good uh, in that group. And I even wrote an op ed for the Washington Post. There was some talk about should he recuse once he's confirmed from anything coming up for the Mueller investigation. I even wrote an op ed that said, I don't think he should recuse. I think once people are confirmed, we should assume, absent evidence to the contrary, that they are going to be impartial. And uh, because and-
0: recusing on the Supreme Court is relatively rare. I mean, it happens.
1: You have to have like a very personal vested interest. Like your
0: wife sits on the board or is the CEO of a company that comes before the Supreme Court or something.
1: Yes. And I thought, you know, my argument was, I don't want to go down the road that, you know, some people on the extreme right have gone down with Mueller saying just because, you know, some of his team are Democrats, they can't be impartial. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. we have to trust at some point that our judges are going to uphold the Constitution and uh, maybe they will disagree with their rulings. But we have to let them do their job. So that's was my starting point. Um, and when this allegation first came out, I was incredibly troubled. And at that point, um, I felt, well, I think there has to be a hearing, um, where this woman gets to speak because, you know, I don't know if this is true, but for, I I felt that for his own sake and for the sake of the legitimacy of the court, you would need to have this aired out for people to be able to evaluate the credibility of of these different uh, version of events, because I think above all, it was most important that anyone who gets on the court be above reproach, because Absolutely. we need we need to have we, people need to trust the court. Um, we will always just dis- some of us will always disagree one way or the other, you know, depending on the issue. And it has to have that moral authority. And so that was my position that we need to have a hearing. We need to hear both sides and then decide when I saw his testimony on Thursday, I was particularly struck by the partisanship Mm -hmm. and incredibly disappointed with that, because above all this, I mean, you're a judge, you know, you have to, people have to believe that you can approach things objectively and not see things through the lens of politics. Uh, That is what law enforcement and the judicial branch is about. I mean, justice has a blindfold on. And for me, that the way that he presented himself erased any notion that he could ever be perceived as being Impartial. Even if he got over it and did anyway, I think people will always believe that he is. And, you know, the Clinton stuff. And I, I just, I felt that that alone, um, let's leave aside the lack of candor. I just thought this, you know, we just need somebody else. um, Because this is not a moment in time when every institution is under attack that we can afford to have the Supreme Court politicized. This way.
0: That is so- such an important point. And I'm glad that that's what stood out for you, especially for someone who has a career um, in law, and that you've taught this, you've lived it, you understand the importance of nonpartisanship in the application of the law at the highest levels. I mean, we, there's a big conversation going on about criminal justice reform in this country and the, the inequities in the way the law is applied oftentimes in different areas for different ethnic groups and different folks. Um, you always feel like the Supreme court is supposed to be above all of that. Yes. And I, in fairness, I called you a bad American. Cause I said, you weren't watching the hearings on Thursday. <laughs> I actually was driving. I saw the beginning with, Christine Ford, and then I saw part of Kavanaugh's um, testimony as I was driving. I turned, I put it on on my cell phone on my dashboard, which is so against every traffic rule ever. <laughs> um, so I Just between you and I you know, know I know. <laughs> um, but I listened to the, the first maybe twenty minutes of his opening statement, and then I said, "I've got to watch. I've got to see his disposition because I know how it sounds, but I need to see this." I was struck by his temperament, also, and I try really hard to approach things as objectively as possible when the stakes are this high. Even though I come from a conservative point of view, but things like this, I can I can objectively look at both sides. And when I heard that rant about the Clintons, about you know the people are is this revenge for Trump winning, and I said, Oh my gosh, this you can't have this level of partisanship for a Supreme Court justice. Could you imagine if Elena Kagan or Sotomayor or any liberal justice had approached their nomination that way?
1: No. And I would be saying the same thing. Exactly. Did, and so, like, and so would that Republicans. That railing against Republican. I mean, I would just say, go away and right. let's get somebody who doesn't see everything through a political lens. Exactly. Because, you know, at some times, you know, I mean, this is why, this is how you have faith in the court. I mean, the, Affordable Care Act, that Opinion upholding it was written by Chief Justice Roberts, much I mean, to he, the he,
0: chagrin of many Republicans. But yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> and that, that you know, you need to know that they are going to let the chips fall where they may, and you might have an indication of their judicial philosophy. You know that they are more uh, textualists or you know originalists or whatever. You might have a, a sense, and and those are those are fine things to debate about. And you're going to have a variety of those. That's about jurisprudential philosophy. Right that's not the same as partisanship. And, um, well, that's why the founding fathers have the three separate
0: branches of government to balance each other out. That the judicial branch was not supposed to be political for these reasons. So it, it it's, uh, yeah. So that's interesting. And I'm glad to see that that's what stood out to you. And I think that that's a point that's being lost in a lot of this because the partisanship, the tribalism about this Supreme Court seat right now is so out of control that we can't even we it doesn't seem like we can even have a conversation about the troubling partisanship that came out of his mouth that day. What did you yeah. think? What did you think about his temperament, the way that he you know, was asking questions back at the senators. And yeah, that was
1: really troubling to me, too. I mean, Tara, you know, I served at Yale University on the university wide committee on sexual misconduct. So this is um, actually came out of Yale University being sued by the Department of Justice for Title IX violations for having a hostile environment for women. So they created a pretty robust system to investigate all Allegations of sexual assault, sexual harassment. I've sat on these cases and um, chaired them and questioned uh, people. And you know, it it can be very upsetting for people who are accused or you know. And I, I'm not a senator even. And I would have like if somebody who was sitting across from me when I was asking questions like started yelling at me, I would have been like, what? And this is this is the Senate. This is a senator. They are
0: the greatest deliberative body in the world. Exactly.
1: He is in their chambers. He is there to answer their questions. And um, the turning I I didn't even know what to make of it. I mean, again, it was a certain lack of humility or willingness to understand that he had a role in their investigative process. And I mean, let's be honest, that has also become a partisan inquiry, but. Understanding that you can still be respectful and responsive. Right. And and I think this the turning it around. I mean, inappropriate, I thought, to ask the senator back if she ever blacked. I mean, I didn't even know what to make of it. I was like, what? I don't even know where this comes from. Well, Um, it it struck me
0: as there were a couple of parts of that that struck me. Obviously, just the ranting and the emotional swings of his opening statement from like almost yelling and the belligerence and the partisanship to the very strange crying and sniveling and like he just couldn't keep it together for other parts of his opening statement to swinging back to this in-your-face evasive, very... um, just petulant, almost. You know uh, the whole "I like beer" and yeah, I like beer. Do you like beer? What do you drink, Senator? I was like, wow, this guy. What is happening? That that stood out what to me. <laughs> I was like, what is that happening? sums up the last. Two
1: what is happening? <laughs> yeah, I say
0: that a lot. Actually, um I should get I should get like a bumper sticker on my car. It says, "What I
1: is happening?" Chris Hayes on MSNBC has a podcast. Does he? Oh, that's so
0: funny! <laughs> yeah, um, that was one part of it, and then the other part, just the, the the exchange with him and Dick Durbin, I thought was one of the most illuminating parts of it as well. When Dick Dur- Senator Durbin was asking him, "If you 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 think that you're innocent, you claim you're innocent, why would you not want an FBI investigation?" To exonerate you why wouldn't you just call for it if you think you're this innocent why given this high stakes here why wouldn't you just turn to Don McGann who's sitting right here and ask the White House to ask for this and his reaction to that was just so off-putting that's the element of this that makes no sense to anyone who's looking at it if I knew that I didn't do anything And I was that upset because people say, oh, he was just defending his honor and his family. You'd be pissed off, too, if you were being accused of being a rapist and this and that. Yes and no. I mean, there's a certain you need to know how to control yourself at at certain levels, given the the stakes and the position. But did that strike you as something that was that just did not make sense? If you're that innocent and you believe you're that squeaky clean, what was the reticence to having being supportive of an FBI investigation reopening?
1: Yeah, I found that incredibly strange. Uh, I talked about that with Ana Cabrera earlier today on CNN. You know, it was it was just a non Exactly what you said. I mean, if if you are 100% sure that this is a false accusation, you say, "You know what? Talk to everybody and you will come up with nothing." I will sit down and ta- I I would take volunteer to take a polygraph test. Yeah, I mean, you know, you would be willing to do everything. And the way Dr.
0: Ford was the way Dr. Ford was he
1: has concerns that it's going to, you know, spiral out of control. He could have said that, too. Like, listen, I am okay with the background. If you want to open this up, you know, um, I like I want this to you know, I don't want this to drag out for months and months because I feel that this I think you won't find. I mean, he could have like if there were other concerns that. He was worried about that this is going to somehow go on for months and months. I mean, what I don't like is there was just a lack of real like he wasn't real. Right. You know, it was very put on Like just if, you know, if you object to it, say, why? Tell us why. And the fact that he just didn't answer and was evasive and also unwilling to have his main witness, Mark Judge, be interviewed he was also evasive about that and well, kind we of... know
0: why i mean you <laughs> would you want mark judge as your character witness
1: <laughs> i wouldn't No, he's not <laughs> he's
0: <laughs> terrible
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's
0: and for those who don't know, let me just preface it. Yeah. Mark Judge was the other guy in the room alleged alleged to be in the room by Dr. Ford during the alleged sexual assault. And Mark Judge was Brett Kavanaugh's, one of Brett Kavanaugh's closest friends in high school. And Mark Judge has struggled with alcoholism throughout his life. And he's written books and articles about his struggles with alcohol but he's also written about the partying culture at georgetown prep um, that would be consistent with what dr ford has alleged and also consistent with what some of brett kavanaugh's fellow students at yale have come forward now in light of the way he's tried to um, mischaracterize his behavior at Yale, claiming that, oh, he never drank to excess and he just had a couple beers. Some Yale students have now come out and said, that's bullshit because not only do we know, we drank with him to excess. So why is he lying about this? So Mark Judge is a pivotal character in all of this that the Senate committee would not allow to be to testify. They didn't call him. He just wrote some kind of flimsy statement that signed off and said, yeah, I don't remember any of it. And, and remember that, was that Mark
1: Judge can also would be the person to speak to the meaning of those particular terms right. in the yearbook, the Renata alumnus, you know, where there were a group of boys that claimed that they were alumni of a particular woman mm-hmm. that but this was the other implausible thing that he claimed that that was a term of affection. Yeah. C- come on. We're, when we're, there we're, was a poem in there that said, you know, if you don't have a date and it's getting late, call or yeah. I mean, It's, it's like, um, I I mean, that's just dumb. Right. Like nobody, believes, believe that. <laughs> like, nobody believe believes that. Bullshit. Like nobody believes that. Right. She didn't even, I mean, she didn't even know. I, You know, and when that, that woman, when she found out she was incredibly hurt, as I think anybody would be. Sure. Um, P.S. Who was like overseeing the yearbook at Georgetown Prep? I know. That was like, the grossest yearbook I have ever seen in my life. It,
0: yes. For, uh, there
1: are so for many Catholic offensive school, things. Like, I mean, for a Jesuit, like, who, what? Yeah. that I can tell you right now,
0: our yearbook committee would never have allowed that. And I'm from you Jersey. Know. And so we were like, not <laughs> squares. We're from, I'm from right outside New York City. I'm from Paramus, New Jersey. I mean, you know what, middle class America, but we That never would have flown no, by our yearbook committee. That's that why we have a yearbook committee. Was,
1: well, he, I mean, Mark Judge, let's talk about his yearbook entry, which had the thing of some women should be struck like, like gongs.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Unbelievable.
1: Unbelievable. So, I mean, if I, to be honest with you, Tara, I think perhaps more than being, you know, saying something about this particular allegation, I think... Judge Kavanaugh could be afraid of what he would say about the culture generally with regard to women, which would completely counter the way that he has portrayed um his own, you know, high right. school experience and, and, and what those things meant and everything.
0: And the longer this goes on, the more people that come forward, which oh, we've already yeah. seen. Um you're at Yale. You're on the ground there. Is there what's the chatter? Since Yale is kind of a you know, a supporting, playing a supporting role in all of this, like, is there, is there any chatter on the ground about the frat culture there about the secret society that he was allegedly in? Like, what's kind of the, the scuttlebutt on the ground at Yale?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I, Since I it think is the right one now law there's more <laughs> action at Yale law school, um, which is kind of its own independent, you know, ecosystem from the larger university at Yale law school. There were protests, Uh, Yale Law Women went down on last Monday to protest uh, at the Capitol. There were there was a sit in there because, you know, initially when he when Judge Kavanaugh was nominated, as institutions do when their alumni get nominated or achieve things, put out a press release that said, you know, our alumnus, blah, 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 and we're proud or whatever. And uh, the students were quite upset. Uh, but that was even before these allegations. Since these allegations, um, you know, the the students have felt that the law school should come out and, you know, and take a position. And I think, in fact, Dean Gherkin, after Thursday's hearing, uh, like the ABA, actually <laughs> said right. that there should not be a confirmation vote until there is... Um, a longer and FBI investigation. Um similarly, uh one of the uh professors who wrote an op-ed in support of Judge Kavanaugh I think might have even testified on his behalf. Yeah, he did. Uh, Akil Amar uh also has expressed his reservations and you know supported an uh an investigation. He wrote something for the Yale Daily News. So that's what's going on at the law school. There is a lot of activity there um, and a lot of pressure uh, for the law school to take a position and you know be vocal because he is an alumnus. As far as the undergraduate, I think the reckoning for the undergraduate really came when I mentioned before that Title IX lawsuit. I mean, there was I think a toxic culture and so the university has had to actually come into legal compliance with uh, creating a atmosphere that that tries to get rid of that. And, you know, in my time serving on the university wide committee on sexual misconduct, there have been, you know, issues brought not just among individuals, but with fraternity. So they are taking it very seriously. And I think, I mean, I'm sure I mean, there is still a drinking culture. uh, But they they I think have created they have a they are working on it. They're very conscious of it and I think have created systems to try to address and uh, mitigate the culture that was in place when Kavanaugh, when Judge Kavanaugh was here.
0: But as I clutch my pearls, Asha, what do you mean there was a drinking culture on campus with women at Yale, the number one law school, uh, as Brett Kavanaugh reminded us many times, um, you know, <laughs> exactly this happens on college campuses everywhere even in the ivy league yeah so again that just goes to further the the, the brett cap Ka- like the how incredulous most people were about brett kavanaugh's testimony trying to act as though we were all crazy when we insinuated that maybe you were a little bit of a partier possibly and he's like no 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 come on buddy like especially even back in the, in the mid to early 80s when this exactly. where everybody was running wild um I think that, you know, Kavanaugh's pedigree does not give him a pass. And I think that a lot of people um, who support him and a lot of the Republican senators seem to think, and Kavanaugh himself, seem to think that his pedigree should give him a pass. And that's another reason why I Tara, think that his I honestly, nomination should be I mean, I know that that's polled. kind of
1: the the take right now. I think right now it's just plain ego. I yeah. think the more that comes out, they know. I mean, I think that's what they are kind of latching on to. Oh, he he's a he has achievements. We don't want to ruin this life. But I think at this point it is about partisanship. And, you know, it's it's an unwillingness to concede anything because that would be a win for the other side. Because let's face it, they have other candidates, even more conservative yes. candidates. Yes. Who they could put here? I mean, we could avoid this whole shit show for better lack of
0: yeah, a better. Yeah, that's word. what it is. You know, it <laughs> this is, is honestly speaking, and you're that's being honest.
1: You know, we could. You know, they could. They could nominate Amy Comey Coney Barrett and yeah. put a woman, and, but. That would that would imply having to concede whatever it is that they believe it's conceding. So I think you're right that they are using the language of his pedigree and achievements. I think they know that this is just a debacle, but our partisanship at this point has gotten to a point where, you know, never admit defeat. Is what it is. And so they will will let this guy go down, you know, in the court of public opinion, even potentially at the expense of uh, tanking the reputation of the court in the process Uh, rather than doing the simple thing. I think at this point, the right thing, not that, you know, that this allegation shouldn't continue to be investigated, but for the purposes of this nomination, they could. Just pull the nomination and put somebody else in.
0: Right, for the love of God, for the for the integrity for the of the Supreme of Court, please, you know, <laughs> yes. let yes. something be sacred in the era of Trump. You know, this is like the exactly. last vestige of our government that that we were holding on to that that Trump has now infected. My well, good friend, like that
1: book that Rick Wilson. Yes, wrote. I was just going to say, my good friend Trump Rick Wilson touches, yes. dies.
0: You know, yes, he was my guest two two weeks ago. And I said, Rick, if that is not the most poignant title, summing up what we're going through right now, I don't know what is he nailed it with that. And, and here we are now. He's t- t- the Supreme Court is about to shrivel on the vine because of the, the error of Trump. So um, we have a couple more minutes left. I just want to shift gears a little bit. But uh, does Kavanaugh get confirmed? What do you think?
1: You know, I don't even want to predict because every time there's a new plot. This is like choose your own adventure, and there's like a new huge plot twist. Um, it's like the sixth sense where like you go to the end and you right. find out. I mean, I don't want to spoil it for people, but um, I can't say I don't know. At what this do you point. think? I would not 60, have expected. I didn't expect Jeff Flake to suddenly come out of the blue. And I thought he was going to go through this weekend.
0: Well, he, um, he was until those brave woman, women cornered him in an in a elevator and shamed him into doing the right thing. And God bless those women. I don't care if they're progressives. I don't care if people think that you know there's some kind of feminist plot to take men down in this country, all that nonsense. Just objectively watching that, it was heart-wrenching and raw and real. And it sent a message that, A, democracy works. B, your voice matters. And that was something that was, I I thought that was so important. And I'm glad that we saw that play out on live television and it's being replayed over and over again. And look what those two women telling their stories, look what it did. It could have potentially shifted this entire historic event. Yep. It was, it was, it was monumental and hats off to them. Um, so I, I know I've kept you longer than we originally agreed to, but it's we're having so much fun. And <laughs> a couple more minutes, just a couple <laughs> more minutes. Thank
1: you for having me. No,
0: thank you so much for making the accommodation. Um, it would be remiss of me if if I didn't ask you about Rod Rosenstein and what's going on with that, given your experience with the FBI. And, you, you know, you've been very vocal about the Mueller investigation, and Trump's treatment of the FBI and the Department of Justice. The, the last time, in part of this crazy shit show in the last week, we thought Rosenstein was out. He yeah. he was fired. He resigned. We don't know who's going to replace him. The profiles about the solicitor general started coming out already, and the next thing you know, it was like, er, no. Nope. That's not happening yet. Yeah, and then we
1: haven't heard anything about it since. No,
0: it's, we don't have time for that now. Let's cast aside <laughs> Rosenstein. You're all right for now. I mean, this is nuts. I, um, what yeah, do you What I, do you think is going to happen with that? I I think Rosenstein's safe until after the election. I agree. But who knows after that?
1: I agree. I agree. I think perhaps, and I, you know, maybe for once, Trump is actually listening to his lawyers, who are like, you know, because I think he made also the mistake of talking about the Russia investigation with regard to Rosenstein, like the guy doesn't understand that if he's going to fire somebody like stick to the non obstructy reason
0: for it. Right.
1: You know, like don't be so honest about the fact that you're trying to quash the Russia investigation because then you're, you're potentially committing a crime. So, um, you know, I don't know if it's because of that as lawyers or if, you know, Rosenstein has buttered up to him, you know, maybe he's a good talker. And the other thing I think here that's um, hard for Trump and his ego is remember that the basis of the allegation or the, you know, the suggestion that Rosenstein was, you know, suggesting that people wire themselves up or invoking the 25th Amendment is coming from memos written by Andrew McCabe,
0: Right, and they and they so, have a little beef, right? They there's it, kind of a little uh, little rivalry going on there because McCabe yeah, said, "I'm mean, not going down with the ship by myself."
1: But you know, I think it could be also a case where Trump's hatred of Andrew McCabe uh, over is is more than his anger at Rod Rosenstein. Right. In other words, to fire Rod Rosenstein would be to give some credit, like credence to something that andrew mccabe did and i just oh, think that's it,
0: interesting you know it's so almost a, like he's doing it to sp- like i'm gonna keep him there to spite andrew mccabe's i'm not yeah, gonna give I that mean, bastard he has, what he wants
1: i think <laughs> that's a logical way that he would think oh, that's like, interesting yeah so um but i agree with you i think for whatever reason uh it is i think that rosenstein knock on wood will be safe until after the election at least and then we can revisit well
0: uh i I always try in the last couple of minutes that we have to give people, to give my listeners a little bit of a personal side of my guests, because a lot of times they only see us on television. They don't get a chance to see like in a long form, the opportunity to get to kind of know people a little. So I just want to ask you just a couple of little quick personal questions about you. So people kind of see when they see, yeah, they see badass Asha Rangappa who went through the FBI, you know, she was a special agent. She's this, you know, Princeton grad law professor all of this but the, the other side like what makes asha asha um what made you decide to go and join the fbi because you're a trailblazer you were the first indian <laughs> american woman to graduate from quantico right
1: yes as a special agent yeah. yes um and priyanka Chopra stole my life I, I still feel like i should get royalties for for her tv show right you know, I that's you <laughs> 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 they never even called me um so uh, I, I joined the FBI, I actually applied before, uh, when I, in 1999, because I wanted to be a federal prosecutor, and I did not want to go work for a law firm. Um, And that was kind of the typical path to becoming an AUSA is you work for a law firm for a few years and then you apply to be an AUSA. And I had a brilliant idea that I would kick down doors and (laughs) for a few years and then become an AUSA. So I applied in 99. The FBI was on a hiring freeze at the time. So I was told that I might wait, wait 5 6 years if 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 I got in at all. So I went on with my life. I clerked for a federal judge and at the end of my clerkship 9/11 happened. And because I had gone through the first few phases of the FBI testing, I was in their system as a language speaker. So I speak fluent Spanish and I'm also I also speak an Indian language. And if you remember after 9/11, I mean you know, the intelligence community was so caught off guard, and language skills just shot to the top of their That's list something right. that they wanted. So I basically got fast tracked through. I went through Quantico. And then ended up doing uh, counterintelligence investigations, which isn't exactly kicking down doors because you're really monitoring diplomats who are posing as or spies who are pl- posing as diplomats. So you're really not going to kick down their doors. Or, well, if you wanted you to know. kick down doors so bad, you should have joined the marshals. <laughs> they kick exactly. down doors all the time. Right. So I was doing a lot of, you know, spy versus right. spy. Right, right. And the stuff that I thought, oh my god, who will ever care about this? Like, I no one's ever gonna know anything about this and FISA, like, who cares? And then here we are, and that's, you know, we're talking about spies all the time. Yeah, it's
0: actually quite, quite consequential. So for people listening who think that all the glory is in kicking down doors, (laughs) there's a lot more involved that keeps this country safe that that these unsung hero FBI agents and other federal agents do that we don't know about that allows us to sleep soundly at night. That's right. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that was it. I mean, you know, recruiting foreign agents to become double agents for us and surveillance and... Um, You know, it's a lot of behind the scenes, things that don't typically see the inside of a courtroom. And it's a whole different side of the FBI that I think until a lot of this Russia, you know, election interference came about that people really knew was a part of the FBI's mission. So wh- how do you decompress? Because I know,
0: I mean, I asked Phil Mudd. I had Phil Mudd on last episode and uh, I love Phil Mudd because I'm I'm no-nonsense and he's no-nonsense and um, I, I just appreciate his candor. There's no lack of candor with Phil Mudd. And yeah. what my producer said, I asked, I usually ask, like, what do you want me to ask the guest that I might not remember? He goes, I want to know how that guy decompresses. Like, does he do breathing exercises? Like, what is <laughs> what does he do? So I said, I'm going to ask. So now I kind of feel like for people who have been involved in high stress environments and Mm -hmm. continue i mean just just the political environment we are ejected in every day is high stress enough what the hell do you do to decompress and actually get yourself away from the crazy and the chaos of all of what's going on what makes asha relax what do you enjoy are you a dog or a cat person
1: yeah um So I feel like self-care has really moved to the center of my list, particularly since the 2016 election and, you know, doing this work with CNN, which is unpredictable. You have to really make it a focus. So I uh, meditate in the mornings. Um, I try to get to the gym at least a couple of times a week. I get a massage once every two weeks and I kind of do that as a non-negotiable, you know, (laughs) I'm going to do it. I I tell my kids, you know, this is happening. Um, And then I try to do things that feed my soul. I love theater. So I I try to get to go, you know, I go see a show. I'll go by myself. Oh, Um, me too. See A show uh, if I'm in New York or I mean, I live in New Haven, which has great theater. So I do that. Um, And
0: what's your favorite show? Do you like dramas, musicals?
1: I like musicals, uh, musicals and Shakespeare probably are mm-hmm. the two that are up there. And, uh, you know, I think between that and taking care of my kids, um, I, you know, I try to be present with them to unplug from my phone, though. That's hard. I know. Uh, with the news cycle, <laughs> so you just get sucked in and, um, and I am a cat person. I have a cat, but, um, he, you know, he's got, Issues, so he's not. All, he's not don't all don't most cats. Relaxing? But I love him, and he's he's furry, and you know he he can sometimes snuggle and be a good cat. I have so. a cat. I
0: have a cat too. His name is Tiki, and he is the love of my life. Even though my husband, yes, he's the love of my life, but Tiki was there first. And yeah. the the Tikster is lying right here next to me, all in the business as I do my podcasts all the time because that's just how he is, and he's the cutest ever. So I mean, I grew up around dogs. Dogs. My grandmother was a professional dog handler, so I love dogs, but my life is just way too on the go, too much going on. that I just don't have time to give to a dog, which is why I yeah. love my cat, because he's so self-sufficient. So, so you
1: have to follow Emergency Kittens on Twitter.
0: I saw that you you tw- tweeted something about that, and I was like, I made a note next to it. I'm like, I have to follow <laughs> this account. I'm like, I know she's a cat person. <laughs> That's why we get along. That's why we get along. Yeah. Um, How did last question? How did CNN find you? How'd that come about? Because a lot of people think, well, you know, how do you end up on television? You know, you're (laughs) so accomplished. You do you know, you're this professor at, at Yale, you do all these amazing things. And like, so how did you end up at CNN?
1: It was kind of by accident. Um, I guess I can owe my CNN career to President Trump. Um, you know, one day he I was kind of in fetal position for a few months after the election. And then yeah, one, day, you weren't alone. <laughs> one day he tweeted that uh, Obama had wiretapped him. I mean, it was one of those crazy tweets. Yeah, it was March and- of
0: March of 2017. For those That's who right. want to remember, because I was exact- on air GMA when that happened. So, yes, yeah, I remember.
1: So, um, you know, I just I I was watching the news and people are talking about FISA and they had no idea what was going on. So I wrote an like an explainer about FISA, which was published in Just Security. And then I sent it to someone that I had met a while back who was a booker for Fox. And I said, do you want anybody to talk about this? Because I did this and Mm -hmm. I can. And she was like, can you be on tomorrow at one o'clock? So I was like, OK. So that was my first foray. Um, and then they kept calling, you know, different Fox shows. And then um, James Comey got fired. Mm. And so, you know, Politico reached out to me and said, can you people are freaking out. They don't know what's going to happen. Can you write something about what's going to happen in the FBI? So I wrote this, you know, kind of step down from the ledge piece about FBI will keep doing its job. You know, no, they're. Files aren't going to get burned in the back or anything like that. And that piece got a lot of circulation. And so I started getting calls from other networks. And as you know, in this business, uh, when one network wants to have you exclusively, they have to put a ring on your finger and, you know, say we want to have you as our exclusive contributor. And CNN did that. So um, I've been on with them since about June of 2017. And it's been great.
0: Well, you and Josh Campbell, um, along with Phil Mudd, have been wonderful additions to the CNN family. Uh, I've appreciated your commentary, and I think that you guys really bring a real-world, prudent, uh, perspective to what's going on that is missing from other channels like Fox who are uninterested in the facts and what really happens they're too busy pushing conspiracy theories and deep state bullshit and we don't do that at CNN so as a, as from one CNN contributor to another I appreciate you um, and your perspective and, and your intelligence and what you bring to the table and I think that the network is better for it and the viewers are smarter because of it and that's why I wanted you to be on Honestly Speaking with me to talk about all of this because I just, I think that you're amazing and anything I can do to elevate smart women, I'm happy to do it and at the same time inform my listeners. So Asha Rangappa, thank you so much for spending so much time with me graciously on this. Thank and, you. uh, well, hopefully so- we can, we, I think we may be doing this again because I don't think all of this is going away anytime soon. No. <laughs> and, uh, we, we, we may be chatting again in this capacity because I'm going to, I'm going to text you and go I'll show, what? talk me off the ledge, please. <laughs>
1: yes. Yes. And I'll start, I'll give you many emergency kitten tweets. Thank and, you.
0: And next yeah. time I'm in New York, we, maybe we should catch a show together. My mom was on Broadway, so I grew up oh my going God. to Broadway shows and appreciating theater. I, that's one of my favorite things in life to do. And I married a man who also appreciates theater. God knew what he was doing. He said it's very difficult to find. And yes. so that's uh, another thing that when you say you need to take, you know, take care of your soul, I find music, live theater, and the arts something that uh, does that for me too. I love
1: it. Definitely. We will catch a show together. Absolutely.
0: Thank you so much for joining me on Honestly Speaking. Asha Rangappa.
1: Bye.
0: Usually I do a feel-good story at the end of my shows, but I felt this week that it was really important to encourage women who have been victims of sexual assault to be heard and to stand up and tell someone. Staying silent, I know, can sometimes feel like the safest way to do things, but the only way you can ever really be free of what happened to you is if you tell someone even if it's maybe you don't want to go to the authorities but tell a family member tell a friend possibly get counseling you shouldn't have to live with that burden for the rest of your life and there's help out there so this week i'm going to just mention two resources that i think are really really helpful for for people who have who have survived such a horrible experience the first is is Rain, which is the rape abuse and incest national network and it's the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization um, they operate the national sexual assault hotline which is 800-656-HOPE you can also find them online and they partner with different local sexual assault service providers all across the country and um, they also have, which is interesting, they also have a safe helpline for the Department of Defense, because sexual assault is rampant in the military, unfortunately. And it's uh, that's a whole different culture where it's very difficult to come forward. You know, I know it's been really hard for people to come forward, and it takes a lot of courage. But I think it's so important to know that there are resources out there. You have a support system. And this goes for men and women, because men suffer this too. We saw that with the with the rampant sexual abuse in the Catholic church, unfortunately, and people hold on to these things for years and years and it can be devastating for someone's life. So be encouraged. Know that you are supported. You're not alone and that it's okay to come forward because your voice does matter. You are heard despite what you may see in political circles, or you may think that nothing you say or does might matter or not, yeah, it does, and that's something that I felt really passionately about. Encouraging people to stand up and be heard, so be encouraged. Look at what those two brave women did on that elevator with Senator Flake. Who knows what would have happened if they hadn't mustered up the the courage to do that? And it was spontaneous. Not not saying everyone has to be as dramatic. But it just goes to show you that sometimes stepping out and embracing who you are, no matter what happened to you, that you don't have to be a victim of your circumstance. So I encourage you, if you're in a position or if you know someone who's in a position that's a survivor of sexual assault, come forward. That number again is 800 656 HOPE. So, and here's another. Resource that I thought would be helpful that I'd like to pass along, and that's the Joyful Heart Foundation, and it was started by actress Mariska Hargaday. I think I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, she plays uh, Olivia Benson on Law and Order: Special Victims Unit, a popular show, and um, her response to the content of that show was to start an organization to basically help transform society's response to sexual assault domestic violence child abuse support survivors healing and end violence she was just really moved by the staggering statistics about sexual assault domestic violence child abuse and she just she was overwhelmed by thousands of letters from survivors across the country talking about this so she took action and i applaud her for that so, again, that organization is called Joyful Heart Foundation and it's 100% privately funded. So, if you want to help and you're not, and, and you want to look, looking for somewhere to do that, I think that's a good organization to check out. On that note, um, thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Honestly Speaking with Tara. You can find me on Twitter at the Setmayer or honestly underscore Tara, um, hashtag honestly speaking Tara. Feel free to reach out with your thoughts, questions, comments. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. I'm very interactive. And um, we'll see what next week brings. Stay tuned. Thank you. I'll see you next week on Honestly Speaking with Tara.